Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. On today's show, we're focusing on the environment. In just a bit, we'll talk with WBEC's Jerome McDonald about ideas to boost Chicago's recycling rate. You put 10 cents down on every container, every bottle, every can, most a lot of different kinds of plastics. Some places do it a little differently, but everywhere that does, and they do it all over Europe, most all of Canada does this, and they get, you know, 75 to 90 percent return rates. But first, if you looked at a map of dumping grounds, transportation depots, or other polluted sites, and you overlay that map with a map of residential areas, here's what you'll find. These areas are in or next to low-income neighborhoods, or neighborhoods made up of people of color or immigrants. And the health of those residents is often impacted just from living there. In recent times, journalists, researchers, and activists have been taking a closer look at the problem, and some have been working with these populations to get them what's called environmental justice. But while Asian Americans are the fastest-growing racial group in the U.S., they've been underrepresented when it comes to studies looking at these environmental health disparities. Chicago Asian Americans for Environmental Justice is trying to change that by informing their communities and pushing for collective action. Joining me now to discuss the group's work and more are organizers Andrea Chu and CNE. Andrea, CN, welcome to Reset. Thank you. So before we talk about the group, Andrea, just give us a brief overview of the environmental justice issues specific to Asian American communities. Yeah, I think it's really that a lot of these environmental issues from climate change to pollution are not issues that are specific to particular communities, but that Asian Americans are also impacted by these issues that impact everybody. It's just kind of the way in which that those effects impact Asian Americans are a little bit different. So, for example, um, language access is a really big issue with Asian Americans. There are many, many different uh, Asian languages. And so, When we are looking at environmental problems in which maybe folks need different kinds of information from the government or other resources, if they're not translated or if these resources aren't being interpreted to different communities, then those folks aren't really getting the information that they need. Also, Asian Americans just tend to make up a smaller proportion of the population. And so oftentimes they're left out of the uh, conversation altogether. So we are really fighting sort of invisibility and the model minority myth in a lot of different ways. Hmm. Now, you helped start this group. How did it get started? Through a mutual friend, I was introduced to someone named Kelly Chen. And Kelly Chen um, is somebody who lives in Bridgeport and found really high levels of lead in their home where their family had been gardening for a long time. And so we found out that this was an issue that may be affecting a lot of people in the greater Chinatown community. And so we decided to form uh, Chicago Asian Americans for Environmental Justice to combat that issue. Now, Cian, you joined the group after attending one of these workshops. What drew you to this cause? Um, Similarly to Andrea, I love advocacy because that's where I found my sense of community. But I also came from the school where academic is really Everybody loves it, and I was pulled into academics, but these issues were never connected. And so when we were talking about climate change, I was talking about the impact of climate change that I don't understand. It's talking about global warming. It's talking about issues that doesn't affect me in my everyday life. And so when I went to one of these workshops, and when I saw all of these Asian Americans sitting around in a tiny room, and Andrea was talking about um, how... Asian American were in the front line for justice issues that was typically only 
talked about in the sense of black and brown people who push for these justice issues. So when Asian American is mentioned in the same context, I got really excited. And similarly to Andrea, these lines just weren't there anymore after I found out about environmental justice with Asian Americans. Hmm. Andrea, the group is focusing on the Chinatown Environmental Justice Initiative. Tell us a little bit more and, and why the group is focused there. In Chinatown, in Bridgeport, there are a really high number of urban gardens. So a lot of immigrant communities are growing food that, you know, they may have been eating when they were back in their home country. So we go around and we saw a lot of gardens with a lot of bitter melon or a winter melon, uh, sweet potato leaves, that sort of thing. So we were seeing a lot of folks who were really engaged in urban gardening, but we also know that Chinatown and Bridgeport are historically industrial areas. And so we kind of wondered, um, is that soil clean and should people be growing in it? And we really are focused on that question because it does seem to be something that is really impacting the immigrant community more so than the others. And you've done some independent lab testing, sending soil samples out. What have you found? We've heard of a couple of anecdotal stories where people have found really high lead levels. And we started to do a little bit of lead testing, which we're still doing now. And we have found elevated levels of lead in the soil. And so we are continuing um, to do a little bit more research about how widespread this issue is and what what folks can do about it. Now, see, again, you grew up in Bridgeport. What was your reaction when you heard that they're finding these elevated lead levels in the cell, in the soil. Not surprised. I learned about the highway that was built right next to Chinatown, and I learned about the stockyard right before then too. So I wasn't surprised. I assumed there was lead, but seeing the actual numbers, we researched uh, mitigation strategies. We've researched the effects of this, and there weren't much research on that. At least that I understand. If there are research, it's very in academic language. So I wasn't surprised. And what I was more surprised about is how little this is talked about. And and why is that, Andrea? Is it because people just don't know or or is it just a, a lack of understanding that the soil may in fact have lead in it? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of folks who don't know. I mean, um, if you have recently moved here, you may not know about the history of the land use here in Chicago, right? And I think the other thing, too, is that there are folks who maybe don't want to know. (laughs) That's a lot to think about, you know, um, what the impacts of pollution are for your family. And I think for some folks, if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? And so if they aren't seeing super um, immediate effects of anything from growing in those gardens, and some of these gardens have been there for, you know, decades, then it might be something that they don't really want to think about. But I think more so, it's definitely that folks aren't aware of the problem because no one's ever brought it up to them. So, Andrea, part of the group's work is to inform the community, but the other part is to mobilize uh, the Asian American community. What challenges are you facing in, in doing that work? We've been trying to go door to door and canvas in both Chinatown and Bridgeport, but um, these populations, I think, are pretty notoriously difficult to canvas. Lots of folks don't want to come to the door, and Sian can talk more about this, too, but lots of folks don't really want to talk to strangers. So that's been one challenge for us. Go ahead, CN. What what challenges have you bumped up against? Um, Before I joined the group, I did a lot of get-out-to-vote work in the community, and it was one of the saddest things i ever done because, especially in these immigrant communities, they choose to remain apolitical because of so many several reasons. But it's super difficult, and it takes so many energy to reach out to these people and tell them this is important. Mm -hmm. Well, Andrea, I think it's important to point out that 
we're talking about a very diverse community, multiple languages, multiple cultures. I mean, how do you integrate the understanding of that diversity in your work? Yeah, I think we talk a lot about, you know, why we might have these challenges in talking to folks. So, yes, uh, language is a big thing. So in Chinatown, you could speak Mandarin, you could speak Cantonese, and you could speak Toisan. All of these are different languages that are very regularly used in the community. You know, not all of us know all of those languages. The other thing, too, is for us to try and understand, like, why folks have chosen not to come to the door, not to talk to the government. You know, a lot of our families come from um, very traumatic backgrounds or have intergenerational trauma around political persecution in their home countries. And so a lot of folks have very good reasons not to come to the door or not to want to talk to folks um, that they don't necessarily know already. There's no real reason for, um, for them to trust a bunch of random people who come to their door wanting to talk to them about their gardens and their food. When we first started talking, you mentioned uh, the issue of, of model minority, being a model minority and how that fits into the conversation. Unpack that for us a bit. Yeah. So the model minority is this idea that Asian Americans are a pillar of what minorities are supposed to be like. And this really pits Asian Americans against a lot of other minorities, right? So you can point to high income levels or high levels of education. But in actuality, if you break down the category of Asian American into its different subgroups, those assumptions tend to break down pretty quickly. And so what ends up happening is that there are subgroups like um, Hmong or Vietnamese subgroups that actually don't have those high levels of income or high levels of education that are really struggling. But if we use uh, Asian as a catch-all category, then they're not getting a lot of the support that they really need. See, and as you're talking to people and actually getting a chance to engage with people around this work, what are some of the things that encourage you and, and make you keep doing this? There is this one instance where Andrea was canvassing, going around the neighborhood, looking at gardens near Pinkton Park. And that person was just tending to the garden. And when Andrea walked up, they cut a sapling and gave it to Andrea. And so these people are very passionate about planting. And it's just there's this long history of gardening in my heritage. And so that is what I want to protect and seeing people so passionate about this is something that keeps you going, even though they might not understand the negative. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. And I mean, I, I see the tension there because, Andrea, on one hand, you want people to be informed, you want to protect them, but you also want them to be able to pr- preserve what is really an important part of their identity. How are you sort of threading that needle? It's pretty difficult, but we really, as a group, want to um, encourage people to continue to garden. We just want folks to be able to do it safely, right? Being able to spend time in your garden and being able to grow your own food is something that's really satisfying and means a lot to a lot of these families. And it's a way of, yeah, preserving our culture and the kinds of food that we like to have on the table. And so for us, it's really about you know, food justice and food sovereignty, but also making sure that we can um, help people do it in the way that's most safe, right? That mitigates a lot of the effects of what potentially could be harming them and their families. And so it's pretty difficult, but we want to try and build trust with our community and make sure that folks have the information that they need, that it's accessible, and that they know what they can do about it. And what what are some of the ways people can protect themselves? I mean, one of the things that we read up on was that compost really helps and also having raised beds if you don't grow directly into the ground that your home is built on. Oftentimes you can get clean soil from somewhere else and grow there and that will mitigate a lot of the lead uptake um, in these gardens. What are the next steps for the group and what other issues do you plan to look into? 
we are just continuing to do some lead testing just to get a better grasp of how widespread this problem is and how um, how deep this problem is. And then we want to try and get some more info into the hands of the community, making sure that they have translated materials, that we have people who speak the different languages that they speak coming to the doors and talking to them. And then also just making sure that we have mitigation steps ready for people if they're ready to take steps to do that. So yeah, we're really still in the exploratory phase right now, but we're really excited to talk to more folks in our community. That's Andrea Chu and CNE, organizers with Chicago Asian Americans for Environmental Justice. Andrea Cian, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Chicago has been recycling since 1995, but nearly 25 years later, the city's recycling rate is one of the worst in the country. Only 9% of everything that could be recycled is getting recycled. In order to kick around ideas on how to boost those numbers, WBEZ environment and climate reporter Jerome McDonald talked with folks from Mayor Lori Lightfoot's office and local environmental groups. And Jerome McDonald joins me now to share some of those possible solutions. Hey, Jerome. Hey, Jen. How are you? I am well. So first things first, who was at the table for this conversation? Well, you know, people have been asking me, what have you been doing, Jerome? What's going on here? And I've been palling around with Curious City. They've done a lot of great reporting on recycling over the years here, and Monica Ang has done a ton of things. And Monica had this idea, we will bring people together, we will sit down at a meal, we will solve problems. And we started with this recycling thing. And we did get a lot of cool people. Um, Dan Lurie, the chief of policy for Lori Lightfoot, was there. Jen Walling, the executive director of the Illinois Environmental Council. She does a lot of lobbying in Springfield on environmental issues. Jonathan Pereira was there, executive director of Plant Chicago. He is interested in uh, circular economies, and they're doing innovative things there. And Ken Dunn, the founder of the Resource Center, was there. He had the first recycling contract in the city under mailed hair Washington and has kept recycling ever since. And our, our Curious City questioner was there. So we had a nice table full of people. All right. Now, Chicago's recycling woes are well known, a pretty low recycling rate of 9%. But how do we compare to other cities? Well, it's interesting. There is a whole universe of <laughs> divergence. And if you go to the average of the country, it's 35%. Okay. But you got California out there with San Francisco leading the way, 80% diversion from the landfill. Uh, Los Angeles, 76. San Jose, 75. Portland's at 70. San Diego, 68%. But California's had a law in place for many years that requires people to cut shipments to the landfill. And they plan to be at, you know, everywhere at 75% by 2020. Other places here in the Midwest do not. And, you know, we beat ourselves up for being really low, but Indianapolis is might be a little lower. Detroit is about the same. Philadelphia is incinerating half their waste. They just started incineration. There's other places that are turning to incineration because recycling just costs too much. So you can see the universe out there. And, you know, it's interesting because there's so many communities like Evanston has started a zero waste by 2050 program. People want to have a zero waste thing going. But at the same time, the international markets stink. The price for aluminum is down. The kind of economics of it is failing. So this conversation fortunately, was all about solutions. (laughs) So what solutions jumped out for you? You know, for me, when I started looking into this, I loved container deposits. It seems like a slam dunk. Everywhere that does it, and there's 10 states that do it, get uh, rates that are like 75 to 90 percent. And exactly what is a container deposit? You put 10 cents down on every 
container, every bottle, every can, most a lot of different kinds of plastics. Some places do it a little differently, but everywhere that does, and they do it all over Europe, most all of Canada does this, and they get, you know, 75 to 90 percent return rates. Our buddies in Michigan are fabulously successful with this. They, they do, they had the highest rate in the country. So I really got down with this. But it, it's only in 10 states in here because there's a little problem. There are people um, who don't get into this. When Massachusetts tried to do this, there was a big pile on from the beverage industry, and they outspent the opposition six to one, and it failed in Massachusetts. Also, the people who haul the recycling, waste management, and Lakeshore, they are both interested in the aluminum cans, which help pay for the uh, the rest of the recycling mm-hmm. stuff. So you would have to kind of renegotiate the whole universe, and there are oppositions to that. But the good news on that is that Jen Walling uh, from the Illinois Environmental Council thinks that there is some change in the offing. There is a bill in the Illinois legislature, and there are some different ideas going on out there. More and more companies like Coca-Cola are getting extremely concerned about the recycling rate and the image that shows on them where all of this trash that is showing up are bottles from Coca-Cola, bottles from Pepsi. I think they're getting concerned about their image and the tide is changing. I still don't know what it'll look like in Springfield on a container deposit law, but it sure is an attractive policy. So still some question there about what that could look like in Illinois, but it sounds like at the table everyone agreed that at least one major component of boosting the city's recycling rate is education. So what's a possible solution there? It's interesting because education, uh, Michigan has really glommed on to education, and they've done it in part because the container tax is not the be-all and end-all. They've got the best container deposit uh, ratio in the country, but their recycling rate is still only 15% in the entire state of Michigan. So they really latched on to uh, education as the thing, and Jen Walling thought education was a really uh, good idea for us here. Michigan has rolled out a program that involves raccoons who are teaching people to, (laughs) to, to recycle, and here's one of the clips that they're putting on TV in Michigan. Up, oh, greasy pizza boxes. Ugh, glass bottles not emptied. Yogurt containers with... Ew! Cat food still in the can is bad. But oh, so good. Hey, what are you doing? Relax, Mom. We're here to help. Oh, this stuff could ruin the entire recycling load. Wow, I had no idea. Chill, we'll show you the ropes. Michigan needs to recycle better, and that change starts with you. Learn the rules of recycling at recyclingraccoons.org. Educational recycling raccoons. I kind of love it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's there. It's kind of a fun uh, campaign, and you go to the website, and there's all these little raccoons there, and they're t- telling you what to do. And uh, Jen Walling made the point that you've got to keep doing this. On our, it's a public policy. You've got to get out there and tell new people who are coming into your community that here's how we do it. Here's the things you can and can't. And you've just got to keep that up and keep that focus, uh, which is something that we've kind of lost here because of our cynicism and, and, and low rates and. We don't know what we're doing with it. And so um, education was a deal. So a container deposit policy, more education. What about composting? Composting was one of the things that most everyone at the table agreed we could do something about. And Jonathan Pereira uh, from the Plant Chicago organization, they're interested in circular economies. He kind of laid this out for us. 
like every resident, every business can do it, like physically on, uh, on their site or in their community. Like I can't go recycle my, my plastic bottle, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to re- – I can reuse things for sure. But for composting as well, there's an opportunity to divert up to 25% of the, the food waste in the city. And we talk about over 20% of the material we send to landfills by weight in the Chicago region is food waste. It's a huge opportunity. Also coupled, when the city's paying – for the disposal and the hauling of that food waste right now, there's a money savings opportunity there that could be reinvested to support more community co- composting operations or backyard composting. So the folks we were talking to was, were into the community composting and trying to get communities to get involved and do it themselves. And they had different ideas about that. Ken Dunn has done this previously and thought that, you know, you can make community incentives that will help this church if you do this uh, composting with us. The downside of composting is often contamination, just like with the rest of the recycling thing. There are places in the universe that have been uh, composting for a long time on an industrial level, like Nova Scotia has been composting for 20 years. But their uh, compost is too infected with plastics and everything that you could imagine that you would normally put into the garbage, and people don't take it if you don't keep it clean. Mm -hmm. So their idea was community composting, pretty good idea and an alternative to make people do it in their neighborhood. You won't exactly, you know, soil your own community there. Right, right. So, so that's a, that was one of the big consensus ideas that we had. So among the group, again, was Mayor Lightfoot's chief of policy, David Lurie. How did he come away from the conversation? Did he say, you know, hey, there's some workable solutions here I can bring to the mayor? Yeah, I think Dan Lurie was interested in the composting and the, the discussion around composting. I don't think it had really sunk into him that that is something really doable. The city obviously has some big problems with its contracts and its waste hauling contracts. The BGA did a study and found out that, you know, waste management was calling 20 times as much contaminated as everybody else. And we asked waste management to come and be a part of the discussion, but they didn't want to. But this is something that is also happening across the country that a lot of people are saying, well, it's contaminated, we're going to throw it out it makes us more money than than trying to recycle it. So that's a pretty big thing. Some people thought that leadership would be an, in, an, an issue and a new Department of the Environment uh, would be important for leadership on the recycling issue. And uh, we did have uh, Dan Lurie kind of addressing some, and of course, the Department of the Environment was a big campaign promise from the Lightfoot administration. And here's Dan Lurie explaining what's going to happen. My hope is that we get the chief sustainability officer in place. They are driving this environmental agenda. That leads to, and this is the mayor's plan, that leads to a new department that will eventually, once we have the budget space, allow for a repository of big new ideas. But that is done not in a silo, but really connected to the streets and sanitation, procurement, Department of Transportation, uh, Department of Public Health, frankly, every department, because it's really that integrated approach that's going to make this work. So there they are going for a chief sustainability officer, and we'll see how that goes with the Lightfoot administration. All right. That's WBEZ environment and climate reporter Jerome McDonald. And Jerome will be part of a biweekly environment segment on Reset here on WBEZ. Jerome, thanks. See you soon, Jen. And that's it for today's Reset. Don't forget to look for a fresh podcast Sunday morning. Until then, I'm Jen White. Have a great weekend, and let's talk again soon. Thank you.